Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Nahum, Prophet Nahum. Uh, show of hands, how many people have read Nahum before? Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm getting at least 10. 10. And how many of you did that this week before this sermon? <laughs> no, yeah, okay. There's a few of those. Knocked out a few of them. <laughs> we're going to be in Nahum. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you're wondering why in the world we're in Nahum this morning. It's because we're, we're actually in a series taking us through the whole fall that is going to go after one of the, what are, what are called the minor prophets each week. There's 12 of these books. They're called minor because they're shorter than other prophets like Isaiah, which is way longer than all 12 of these even put together. They're minor prophets because they're short. And they were all delivered to Israel and Israel, uh, Israel time divided into two kingdoms. So some were delivered to Israel, some to Judah. And all around the time that Israel and Judah were conquered by other nations. So... Some of these books look ahead to that and promise that judgment is coming. Others look back to it. Some of it kind of happen. Some of them come right in the middle. And, and Nahum is one of those. Nahum is, is prophesying to the southern part of Israel after the northern part of Israel had already been taken out, so to speak. And, and, and the southern part of Israel, now called Judah, could see the handwriting on the wall. They knew they were coming and they resented the power that was bringing that judgment. Nahum is addressed to that power, that regime. So, Nahum is where we are this morning. It seems like the last few years I've come to appreciate good stories more than I ever had before. And, and I think I've become more aware of what makes for a good story. That's what I've been really trying to do. I feel like that in college I wasted all the good opportunities I had to understand literature really well. You know, there's so many just gift-wrapped opportunities to do that. And, and I was focused on only my major and wasn't taking advantage of those opportunities. And so I've been trying to play catch-up ever since. And, and one of the things that that attempt to play catch-up has helped me to appreciate is what, it, what makes for a really good character in a story. I've come to see the ability to... To write a good story and to create good characters in that story is something that takes a whole other level of genius than just writing like I would write. So I had to write a dissertation to finish graduate school. And, you know, it was hard, and it took me a long time, and it was what it was. But it doesn't require genius to be able to just explain some facts that you uncovered in your research. But, but to really be able to get in the mind of, of a character that you've created and to make them believable, that takes a whole other kind of insight and one of the things that we love with with characters one of the things we one of the things that marks a good one over a bad one is is one that surprises you maybe doesn't always seem obvious to you that this character would act in the way that they do maybe you can't quite fully understand or get your mind around that character maybe it's somewhat unpredictable or at least it's, it's complex in a way that rings true with what we know about life because life is complex People that we know and interact with, they're not really simple. They have multiple, multiple layers, and they act differently in different situations. That's what we know, and so we appreciate a character that reflects that. And what we don't like, if you have discriminating tastes anyway, what you don't like, is cheesy characters. They're just obvious. You know, They say things. It's almost like those characters are in the story only to bounce off of other characters. They don't have their, they're, they're there to deliver that predictable line that you know they're going to deliver because that, story, that part in the story requires it. We don't like those kinds of flat characters, right? That's what makes her a good one. And one thing that I, I realized a couple of years ago, I had not thought about this before, but a pastor called Tim Keller up in New York City put this on my radar. He, he, I heard him mention this in a sermon that 
that often we actually treat God as if he was one of these flat, predictable characters, as if he just had the one move. I think I've mentioned that in this series even before. As if God is just all loving all the time. As if he's just, as if he's just some sort of a dispenser of favors. That if you put in the right coin or rub the genie in just the right way, the genie gives you what you want. We flatten him out. One of the things that we can't stand is when God shows anything besides love. It's really hard in particular to see God as an administrator of violence. God is somebody who brings judgment, who has things like wrath. Maybe some of the problem is that we talk about, rightly talk about God as unchanging. God is a simple being. That's one of the the main tenets of our faith. He has certain attributes that he always exhibits perfectly throughout all time, unchanging. He's not fickle. It's one of the reasons we trust him to save us when he says that he will is because his covenant is rooted in steadfast love that doesn't move. But maybe because we think of him as immutable and unchanging, we get fixated on the parts of him that we like most and we assume those are the only things that he's ever showing. But one of the things that makes God amazing, one of the things that gives him glory is that he's unchanging in all his many attributes, but that he... He also shows himself differently in different situations. As those situations call for different responses, he gives them through a character that is complex, that is made up of a whole host of qualities and perfections that, that are dwarfed by even the best of human creations. The prophets so far have already been stretching us on this front, especially the ones we've looked at already in, the, in this series. Those that we've looked at so far have really focused on judgment a lot. So you may feel like this series has become something of a broken record. That we're just constantly talking about God bringing judgment on people. And if that's your feeling, I'm going to go ahead and warn you that Nahum may be the toughest pill to swallow from the bunch. This one's nearly all about judgment. And it's not just about judgment. It's not just even judgment on God's people, which is usually followed up by promises that he's still going to fulfill those promises to Abraham. This one's all to their enemy, Assyria and especially Assyria's capital city, Nineveh. It's a word to a powerful and oppressive regime that their power is no match for God's, that their oppression doesn't go unnoticed, despite appearances to the contrary, despite the fact that it looked like they were just getting more and more powerful and could throw their weight around however they wanted to. This is a word to them that that's not the case, that, that actually a day of reckoning is coming. When you boil it down, this is a book that's promising a judgment of such brutality that it's nothing, nothing less than shocking, even more so since it's God that's described as the violent one. And what we want to do this morning is face this portrait head on. We would be a disservice and a disrespectful even to the text to try to tone it down or explain it away as something less than what it seems to us. We want to face it head on and try to understand through it, come to grips with what it means for how we view God and for how we view ourselves. The way I want to do that this morning is to first set up this book's presentation of God as a character in this story that has been told throughout the prophets. God as a character. And the first section of chapter 1 does just that. And then then we'll move to the rest of the book, which is chapters 2 and 3. And those describe how that character plays out in action in the story. They describe how God as character exhibits himself in this particular set of circumstances. And then we want to conclude with a question, which I'll leave till that time. Now, I'm not going to read the whole book, all three chapters. I'm I'm going to just ask you to stand, if you will, in honor of God's word 
while I read from the first chapter of Nahum. This is where we'll begin our time this morning. God's word from Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. You can be seated. Chapter 1 opens up with something like a hymn celebrating the character of God, describing what it is that God is like. It doesn't come through quite so good in our English translations, but the, the section we just read is built like a beautiful poem that could even be sung. And honestly, this one starts where few of our hymns begin. I'm not aware of any Chris Tomlin or Keith Getty or Dave Hunt song that start, it's, it's entitled, The Lord is a Jealous and Avenging God. Dave, get on that, man. <laughs> By the end, it's introduced precisely the complexity in God's character that we're, that we're talking about now. Two sides to God revealed in, in, this, in this hymn. The first verses describe him as jealous. And this is an image that's familiar in Scripture. It comes up a lot in the Old Testament. God is jealous. And it's an, it's an image that's not like a, a wounded lover who feels betrayed or is jealous about someone else's affections for his beloved. It's not that kind of jealousy. Not exactly. It speaks of God's regard for himself, that he be known as he is, that he be worshipped as he was meant to be worshipped. The Old Testament sees all of creation as here to reflect what God is like and to sound back to him the beauties that are true of his character. So God is jealous for that sounding, you might say. And when it goes unsounded, when when other voices call out or, or conflict with that central voice, responding to who God is and declaring what he's like. God is jealous to be known for who he is. That's the way the Old Testament talks about it. It's a holy kind of jealousy that's unique to God. In anyone else, it would be idolatry. In God, it is holiness. That jealousy then leads to a strong desire for vengeance. If you, if you just work your way through this hymn, he's jealous and he's avenging. And the vengeance is just about setting things right. Right? That's what vengeance is. It's when something, something has been done that's wrong and you want retribution for it. You want to set it right. And so you seek vengeance. We tend to add a whole other, a bunch of other layers to it. We tend to think of you know, westerns where you go out west to find who shot your paw. But these, th- th- this is more simple than that. It's just 
vengeance. It's to set things right. His jealousy leads for him to desire that whatever false testimony has been given to him about him, about what he's like, be set right. That it be proven false. He's vengeful. And that's why he'll no, by no means leave the guilty cleared. Then there follow in the, in the hymn these beautiful, vivid descriptions of his power. And when, when, when descriptions of his power are wed to descriptions of his jealousy and wrath, they become so much more terrifying. Look where the song goes. His way is in the whirlwind. The, the clouds, I love this image. The clouds, huge, above us, unreachable, untouchable by us. They're nothing more than dust that his feet have kicked up as he runs. With a word, he can dry up the sea. The sea that appears to us as this thing that is so huge and unmanageable. So it's something so out of our control. That's why we go to be in awe of it. We stand on the beach and look out at this water that basically does nothing. We want an ocean view because we're in awe of the scale of it. And yet God speaks and with a word he dries it up. We go to see the mountains because of how big they are. How how strong and how, how strong they are, how small they make us feel. They're the, the most immovable of objects that we can imagine. And yet God shatters them. They quake at his coming. The hills melt like nothing more than a candle of wax. And the point of all this imagery is that no one can stand before him. When a God, this sovereign, comes in wrath and vengeance, no one stands. It's a terrifying image. Then verse 7, out of nowhere, introduces another side to this sovereign, wrathful avenger. Verse 7 says, the Lord is good, that he's a stronghold in the day of trouble, that he knows those who take refuge in him. That knows is really important. It's about he, he, he knows in a loving and covenant-based relationship. He knows in that kind of relationship those who trust in him. He knows who are his, and for those He is a shelter. He is a refuge in the day of trouble. How do you reconcile these images? How can he both be wrathful and loving? The connection we're meant to see is that these two sides of God's character make best sense when they're put together. We have no trouble... Imagining God as a liberating force. We we like to think of him that way. His love is something that sets us free. But how can you be set free unless there was first oppression or bondage? And how can you be liberated unless that thing or that, that one who was holding you in bondage, who was oppressing you, is first removed or destroyed? For God to be merciful, how can he, how can he show mercy unless you first deserve something else? Unless there's some sort of wrong that needs to be, that should be punished, but that he sets aside, for, for which he sets aside punishment. How does mercy work without wrath? These images only work best when they go together. The concepts themselves, the concepts we love to attribute to God, actually only make sense if things are less than ideal. If there's a world that's full of struggle and competition and violence, because it's into that world that God's mercy and his deliverance and his liberation of us makes most sense. That's the complex character of God that's introduced to us here. And one of the reasons we're studying the prophets, one of the reasons they're so valuable to us, 
is, in the words of one pastor, I believe I quoted a few weeks back, James Boyce says that the, that the, the prophets dramatize the character of God as few other books do. The prophets give us a chance to see the character that we see described all through Scripture in action. Nineveh gives us a great chance to see both sides of God's character in action. So we've said this hymn celebrates him as one who is good, who is loving and a place of refuge for those, in the, uh, those who are his in a day of trouble. And it's also presenting him as wrathful and coming in vengeance. Just his interactions with Nineveh and the prophets show both of those sides in action. So, so two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe three, we looked at Jonah. You remember that Jonah was actually delivered to this same, or was regarding the same exact city about a hundred years earlier. Jonah is sent by this God who is good and a refuge for those who trust in him to Nineveh to try to get those people to trust in him rather than stay his enemies before it's too late. And they repent, at least for a while. Then here in Nahum, hundred years later, we get God interacting with the same city on very, very different terms. The image here is devastating. Before going into the images that the prophets give us, let me first set up the stage with some background on Nineveh. I think if you understand what the city is like, what it represents in this time period, you'll understand a lot better why God is coming at them with the images we're about to look at. So Nineveh was the capital city of that part of the world's most powerful empire, one of the most powerful empires to date, the empire of Assyria. Nineveh, as, as the capital city, was the place of culture. It had the most advanced culture. It's, it's like what we would think of as Paris today, you know, or New York City, or one of these, or Hollywood, maybe one of these hubs where things are created that trickle down all throughout the rest of the country or now the world. They, they have influence that are outside of their scale, of, of what size they are, because they are these cultural hubs where production is happening. That's the way Nineveh was. Its defenses seemed impregnable. Nineveh was surrounded by huge walls. It was well supplied with water, which was crucial if you wanted to survive an attack. You had to be able to withstand some sort of siege, and that meant having plenty of water on hand. So Nineveh was built on the banks of the Tigris River with other little tributaries winding through the city. They were well supplied, and they were well defended by this huge wall. About 100 years earlier, Jonah had preached to them, same city. That city had repented, at least for a time, but now, apparently, they'd gone back to their former practices. What you need to know about Nineveh is not just how powerful the city itself was, but what kinds of culture they were exporting to the rest of the world. And by this point, they had become one of the most brutal and oppressive regimes in history. Nineveh was the capital city for an empire that went about throwing their weight around wherever they could. By now, they had already conquered Israel, the northern nation. So now the, the Nahum would have belonged probably to Judah, the southern nation where Jerusalem was. So Assyria had them kind of surrounded. They knew that they were knocking on the door. Israel had already fallen. They had taken out sections of Egypt, not to mention other nations that were around them. And there are still records to this day that you can go and look at in the British Museum in London of these pictures carved into stone and the kinds of things that this empire would do when they decided to take out a smaller nation. 
There are images of their conquest of one of Israel's cities even and of the brutality, the brutal ways that they would torture their victims and kill them. And at the very least, they would take all the people or a substantial number of them from where they had conquered and take them out of their city, away from their home, their livelihood, from everything that they had ever known. And this, this kind of society that wasn't like America where you just move around at, at random and nobody thinks anything of it. This was a place where... Where in a time where you were, where you lived, and where your family was, and they would hit people where it hurt by taking them off and making them slaves in foreign places that that had no no comparison to anything these people had ever known before. Assyria was what we think of as Nazi Germany. That's what they were, and they seemed invincible. It's this power the greatest and most evil of its time that God promises to squash. That's, this hymn has told us is no match for the jealous God for whom the clouds are nothing more than dust from his feet. For the God who shatters mountains as, at his step as if they're no more than a bit of cracker. That's what Nahum is meant to communicate to us. So let's go to the images. Chapters 2 and 3. Give us this God in action against the most oppressive and evil regime of his time. This is what's going to happen when the wrathful and avenging God, who is also good and a place of refuge for those who trust in him, comes at those who would oppress his people. Chapter 2 begins with the prophet as some sort of eyewitness observer to a coming battle. It's almost like the prophet is, is at some sort of high point where he's, he's like some sort of general overlooking a battle with his eyeglasses where he's, he's able to, from a, from a distance, commanding the whole field, see what all is happening. And he describes it in vivid detail. The chapter begins with a call to battle. It's a call for the Assyrians themselves, the Ninevites, to look, to see the army that's coming for them, to man the ramparts and watch the roads, but... Quickly, it's clear that all their preparations are useless. He goes on to describe the view, verses 4 and 5. He, he describes shields that are gleaming red, maybe with paint, probably with blood. The image is meant to terrify you. He describes the soldiers in their uniforms. He describes chariots darting to and fro through the streets, a scene of chaos with spears gleaming in the sun. He describes the officers, verse 5, calling, calling for attention stumbling towards the wall, trying to get the city defended, but it's obviously too late. He describes the gates by the river coming open. may even be a reference to the crumbling of these river walls. In fact, not long after this, the city did fall, and the way that it fell was through flooding. The river flooded, and it ate away at the walls, and they began to crumble. The people scatter with fear. He describes it as if the palace was melting away. Or like a pool whose waters run away. The helpless officers, he quotes them, they're screaming, Halt! Halt! as the people run. But it's just like a little kiddie pool in the backyard full of water until you push the side over. And what happens? The water just drains. That's what happens to the city. And why? Chapter 3, verse 4 says, It's all for the whorings of the prostitute. There's no mistaking that image. Apparently, he believes that one of the ways that Assyria has gained the power that it has is that it would seduce other nations before exploiting them. It would woo them with its culture. It would promise them that they could be on the same level as Assyria if they, if they would ally with them. And then, once it had them in its grip, they would wipe them out. 
The punishment would fit the crime, and the imagery continues to build with shocking detail. Verse 5 is as shocking as it gets. The Lord promises to expose this prostitute, to lift her skirts over her face so that all can see her shame, to throw filth, excrement on her, to make her a spectacle, and no one can stop it. None of the powers that they trusted before would be able to ward off this coming destruction. So verse 13 of chapter 3 says that their troops, the mighty army that they had trusted, could hold them up against all comers. Their troops would become like women. That's not meant to offend any of you women. It's just that they didn't think women were very powerful back then. And if your troops were to become like women, it would mean they would lose. Troops were going to become like women. They'd try to reinforce their positions. Verse 14 describes them drawing water for the seeds, strengthen our forts. Let's go get clay and mortar and, and make some more bricks to make our walls more, uh, more established, more strong. But, but it's, it's going to be all for nothing. They trusted their troops. They trusted the strength of their walls and their defenses. Those things were going to be as if they weren't there. Fire and sword would still devour them. The rulers, moving on, are like locusts. Not the powerful, destructive force that we've seen in like Joel's prophecy, where, where the coming army was like a locust army that was going to destroy everything in its path. No, they're like locusts because they fly away. Their rulers, the ones who's, who had embodied and represented their, all of their power, are now just scattering to the wind. They'll be like sleeping shepherds as the people scatter, verse 18, with none to gather them. And, verse 19 says, everyone who sees this is going to rejoice. They're going to clap over them. For who has not seen your iniquity? Who has not felt your power? And what do we do with these images? And the last thing we do, the last thing we want to do is try to explain them away. They are meant to shock us. These are pretty near X-rated images, if we're honest. It's tempting to explain them away, try to soften them. But I think that would be disrespectful to the text. One thing I will do is offer a couple of points of qualification. Let me offer two points of qualification to these images to help you understand why this is how God's response to evil is described to us. It's not random. First, this isn't sadistic, but it's actually a technique of poetic called poetic retribution, or what we might call poetic justice. We say something is poetic justice when somebody gets what they deserve, but they get it in exactly the, 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 what they get. Their punishment fits the crime in some sort of clever or ironic way. I mean, if you just read these images cold, they might seem sadistic. It might seem like a, like some, like a kid just squashing a frog for the fun of it. They're not, they, they seem unconnected or random, but they're not. The specific penalties or punishments that are described here correspond to the things that Assyria was guilty of in their conquest of other people. This is them getting what they deserve. Lots of examples of this, but uh, chapter 2, verse 7 is one of them. It refers to the people being exiled. I think that was Assyria's go-to tactic for, for dealing with a, a people that they had conquered. They would send them out of their original homeland and take them to Assyria or somewhere else to serve as slaves. This, that's exactly what was going to happen to them. Verse 9 of chapter 2 talks about the plunder of the city's wealth. Again, another image that's exactly fitting the crime that Assyria was guilty of. Because the reason they had so much wealth, that verse says, is that they had... The reason it's, it's endless, the verse talks about it being endless, or, uh, is that they had gathered it from all these other peoples. They had captured it themselves, and now it would be stripped away. And then the, the image of the, the prostitute being exposed 
for, for all to see, is a, a fitting cri- a penalty for the crime of seducing these other nations, making them feel like they were part of the crowd, only then to, to squash them like a bug. So, these images are meant to fit the specific things that Assyria was guilty of. Don't miss that point. They're not random. The other point of qualification, I think, is that these images, don't forget that they're meant to comfort God's people. As hard as that may be to understand, Nahum's name itself means full of comfort. The point of this book is that it was written to a people who were fearing that they would be wiped out by this power to tell them that this power would not have the final say. The point is that oppression won't go unpunished despite all the appearances to the contrary. And one of the, one of the pervasive questions through the Bible is, why do the guilty seem to prosper, the wicked prosper, while sometimes the good are actually oppressed? Bad things happen to good people and vice versa. That question runs through a lot of the Old Testament, especially because the Old Testament talks about this law that if you're faithful to it, good things are going to happen to you. If you're unfaithful to it, bad things are going to happen to you. And the, what, what, what you do with that is assume that, that good people have good things, bad people have bad things. But history, our experience, doesn't seem to work that way. That's a question that runs all through the Bible, and it would certainly be a question that these dwellers in Judah would have been asking because they'd been sitting back and watching as this mighty, oppressive, evil regime got more and more powerful even as they got more and more close to their borders. And surely they were asking, how can this godless society, guilty of these treacheries, continue to exist with such power? Does God care? Is he even able to do anything about it? It's the question that all oppressed people everywhere have asked at some point. Does God care? Is God able to do anything about it? And the book of Nahum is meant to comfort them. They were a power that seemed invincible, but this message is that that isn't the case, no matter the appearances. So, what we've seen is God as a particular kind of character set up for us, and then episodes of that character in action. And in the year 612, before Christ, Nahum's vision became a reality. Nineveh was in fact conquered and destroyed by the Medes and the Babylonians, and the people were scattered to the wind. This mighty mighty city, one of the most impressive cities in the world, was so thoroughly destroyed that that no one even knew where it was for roughly 2,000 years. It was only about 150 years ago that archaeologists finally found the site of the ruins of Nineveh in near present-day Mosul in Iraq on the, uh, on the Tigris River. They found the mounds where they, they were able to, I guess they found inscriptions with the name of the city. But they, it took that long for the, the destruction that was promised here was so thorough that that's how long it took before Nineveh was discovered again. And for that reason... It may be tempting to see Nahum as just one more historical document, like the relics in the British Museum. Those relics have these carved images describing what it looked like when Assyria would wipe somebody out. It's tempting maybe to see this as another relic next to that that described the way the people of Judah thought about that evil empire. Now that empire's gone, so what's the good of knowing anything about how they thought about them at that time? That's a tempting response to this book, but... What we've seen from these prophets so far is that they were kept, they were preserved by the people and used for worship and instruction because they were believed to have timeless relevance. 
And in this case, that's true because Assyria was just a prototype of what would happen to all who oppose God's rule. Assyria is meant for us as a prototype of all who oppose God's rule. This is what they'll get. You might take verse 13 of chapter 2 as the thesis of the book. In that verse, God simply says, I am against you. I am against you. And the rest is history. So I think what we're left with as readers of this ancient prophecy, I think the central question raised by the book for all of us is this. Is God against you? Is God against you? Now, I'd warn you against being too quick to answer that question. Our knee-jerk reaction is probably, of course he isn't. Of course he isn't. And there are any number of reasons that that's our knee-jerk. It could be that we don't often think of God like this. We've already talked about that some. This is not what we think God is like. We think of him as loving, as generous, as someone who dispenses good things to us. It could be that we assume God won't judge sin, so we don't stop to consider whether he might. Implicitly, even if you haven't made that thought process in your mind, implicitly, we often live as if God won't judge sin. Because we live in a way that doesn't think about how God feels about what we're doing. We often, in other words, we put our chips all in, betting that God is not the kind of God that cares about the things that we do. If he exists, we live as if he didn't. That was certainly true of the Ninevites. They may have been very religious. They had doubtless had any number of deities that they prayed to. We were told that Jonah spoke to these Ninevites and that they repented for a while. So maybe they even had added this God of the, of the Israelites to their pantheon of deities. They were very religious. But by living in the way that they did, by throwing their power around as if might makes right, they were betting that there is not a God who would care that they treated people that way. And it could be that that's true of us too. So I'd ask you, does God's existence... Does God's desire for obedience ever factor into how you make decisions about how you treat other people, about how you spend your life, about your priorities? Does the fact that there's a God who cares ever enter into, your, into the picture for you? Do you assume, like Nineveh did, that because things are going well for you, then you must be doing what's right? Please don't fall prey to complacency. Do not assume that God is the kind of character that you want him to be. Don't assume that he only feels about you in the way that you hope he feels about you. Look at what Nahum says. Look at how he describes God and ask yourself honestly, is God against you? Now, it could be that we don't take that question seriously because we assume that even though God will judge sin, maybe he does hate it, as he's done here in Assyria, He won't judge us this way because we're not guilty of the same sins that they were. Now, it's not likely that many of you have ever participated in a genocide or been guilty of conquests of some other nation. One of the greatest dangers to our soul is that we are persistently unable to see how serious all sin is in God's eyes. It is such a struggle for us. I'm certainly speaking for myself here to connect with why sin matters so much. 
We have the same problem that the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. What did they do? They, they, they tend to bet that if they were, if they were ex, if on the outside they were in, in conformity with, with the rules and, and laws that had been given to them, then that meant that they were okay. If on the outside they were washed clean, then what was on the inside didn't matter. We tend to assume that as long as we're not killing people, our anger isn't a problem. As long as we're maybe not committing adultery, not actually going through with it, then lust isn't a problem. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, of course, where, where he hits the Pharisees hardest is in that fundamental flaw, that fundamental assumption that they made that, made, that placed them in such danger before God. They assumed that God only cared about the big outside things and not about the inside things. Do you assume that? I'm guessing you don't see yourself in the Ninevites. But maybe you should. God ultimately takes all sin personally. He takes it as rebellion against his authority. He takes it as a kind of treason that's got to be rooted out for the stability of his kingdom. He sees it, he sees all sin as a statement on him and what he's like. Any disobedience to him is a statement that he doesn't care or that he's not powerful enough to stop it. And God is jealous for his name. He will vindicate it. That's why all sin matters. Ultimately, you've got to see how God feels about sin and recognize your own guilt of sin. In other words, you've got to be able to connect with the message of Nahum as odd and and distasteful as it is before you'll truly be ready to appreciate Jesus and the refuge that's offered in him. You've got to connect with the message of Nahum before you really understand why you need Jesus. God's intent to judge sin, our sin, not somebody else's sin, our sin, runs as a consistent thread through the Bible. But when we talk about salvation, I don't know if if you find yourself going here, but I certainly find myself going here, even in in the emphasis in my preaching and, and, and see it in the books that I read. I think one of the, one of the most, most uh, dominant ways that we think about salvation now is as the filling of some sort of hole that's in our lives, right? That, that we can't be satisfied unless we find satisfaction in Jesus. That we don't really know who we are until we identify ourselves with him. And that's true. We want to preach that. That's part of the gospel message is that Jesus fulfills what we're trying to fulfill through all these other places. It's a call to... Honor him as that source instead of other idols. But one of the ways we, one of the most consistent ways the Bible talks about salvation is as deliverance from a judgment that we deserve. It's not just moving from dissatisfied to satisfied. It's moving from enemy of God to child of God. Jesus didn't die because we don't know who we are or aren't satisfied by the things of the world. He died because we deserve what the Ninevites, Ninevites got, and we deserve even more. And without images like the one we've seen in Nahum, we can't appreciate the horror of what Jesus endured, and we can't fully appreciate the remarkable extent of God's grace to us. That's why this book matters to us, as old and out of touch as it may seem to you. Remember how the book began. It began with the complexity of God's character. As God, is, God is a God who is jealous and full of wrath, but also good and a place of refuge for those who trust in him. And in light of the cross, we see these two images so much more clearly. We see how those two things can come together. 
In the cross, we see God acting perfectly as judge of all sin. And yet we also see God as refuge for those who trust in him because God takes the bullet designed to wipe out all sin. On the cross, God's wrath and love come together perfectly to offer a refuge for those who trust in him. And he knows those who trust in him. That's the promise of Nahum chapter 1. So the question is, is God against you? And the answer is yes, on your own, he is against you. But through Jesus, God offers you a place of refuge if you trust in him and not yourself. You are either God's child or you're God's enemy. And the Lord is good to those who take refuge in him. So fly to him. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, please protect us from our instinctive revulsion to the images we've considered this morning. Please, if there are those here who need to connect with you and with faith in Jesus, would you please protect them from from turning off their minds to this message because of how out of touch it seems? Would you give us a healthy sense of fear of what it is to have the almighty, holy God of the universe against us. And Lord, would you drive us through that fear to the wonderful peace that is ours because of Jesus. Thank you that you are a refuge and a stronghold in a time of trouble. Thank you that you know those who trust in you. And now we ask you would help us to trust you. Help us for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.